Before we get into this week's episode, just a couple of notes. I'm recording this on Monday, March 22nd, 2020. If you hear a little bit of noise in the background, that's the rain. It is a chilly and wet spring day in the Atlanta area. And I wanted to get this episode recorded, processed, and ready a few days early since I already had the script. If you are listening to this on or around the release date of April 1st, I hope you are safe, healthy, and in good spirits. And this is a special episode of the Already Gone podcast. Today's release marks four years of the show. When I started Already Gone back in 2016, I had no idea where the show would take me or the stories I would tell. I couldn't foresee the relationships I would build with other hosts, with law enforcement, and with you, the listener. And I am so thankful to each and every one of you for your continued support of the podcast. On this week's episode, we are traveling back in time to an exceptionally dark day in Michigan's history. We are covering a story that was voted on by you, the listeners, via a poll posted in our Facebook group. I've had many requests for this case over the years, and so I decided it would be our anniversary show. You also picked it in that poll in our Facebook group, which helped. And, full disclosure, just like with the Edmund Fitzgerald episode, my attempts to research this story left me very emotional. So I turned to a writer to craft the script. Special thanks to Brittany Martinez for writing this one for us. A bit of housekeeping. We are again sponsored by BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash gone and use code gone at checkout for a special discount. Also, if you have not had a chance to review the show, please take a moment, leave us a rating or a review on your favorite podcatcher. Reviews help other listeners discover Already Gone and the stories shared here. And a note of warning, this week's episode contains graphic details of a horrific incident that took place at a schoolhouse. Listener discretion is advised. The night of May 17, 1927, 55-year-old Andrew Kehoe was seething with hatred and anger. As he checked every wire and every stick of dynamite, all he thought about was how the town of Bath and its school tax were ruining his life. After all, that was the reason he couldn't pay his mortgage. It was all their fault, and he would make them pay. May 18, 1927 began with fire. At 8.45 a.m., Andrew detonated the dynamite he'd planted throughout his entire farm, including the barn. It was later discovered that Andrew had wired everything for complete destruction. He chained his horses to the barn so they could not escape, and he made sure his farm equipment was destroyed in the flames. The first neighbors to arrive at his farm were searching for Andrew and his wife Nellie, but they couldn't find them. Their search was cut short when they noticed the large amount of undetonated dynamite that was laid throughout the home and yard. Can you imagine walking across your neighbor's lawn and seeing explosives in the grass? Just madness. Neighbors and firefighters tried to put out the fire at the Kehoe farm. Before they made much progress, they were distracted by large explosions, explosions that came from the direction of the local schoolhouse at 9.45 a.m. 
You see, prior to the bombing, Andrew spent months carefully filling the basement of the school with hundreds of pounds of dynamite. Every few days he'd bring a little more, and since he was the maintenance man, his comings and goings were not unusual or concerning. Fortunately, only a portion of the dynamite Andrew wired for detonation actually exploded. Investigators later found over 500 pounds of undetonated dynamite. Despite only a small portion of the dynamite going off, the results were devastating. What would cause a man to set his own home on fire and then bomb the local school? Can you pinpoint the moment in his life that turned him into a murderer? Come with me to a cold day in February of 1872, where our story begins. Andrew Philip Kehoe was born in Tecumseh, Michigan on February 1st, 1872, to Philip and Mary. He was one of 13 children on his family's farm. As a child, Andrew developed an interest in electricity. He was also a quiet young man who preferred to be alone than with other people. When he completed high school, Kehoe attended the Michigan State College in East Lansing, where he studied electrical engineering. After his studies, he settled in St. Louis, Missouri, where he would reside for many years before returning to Michigan. You see, when he was 18 years old, Andrew's mother died due to a disease of the nervous system. His father remarried a woman named Frances Wilder, a widow with several children. Andrew hated his stepmother, and they fought constantly. And this is likely one of the reasons he moved out of state rather than living near his family in Michigan after he completed his education. At the age of 40, Andrew moved back home to help his father with the farm. Philip's arthritis was so bad that the farm would have completely deteriorated without the help of Andrew. Despite having grown older and presumably mature, Andrew still had a tumultuous relationship with his stepmother. And to make matters worse, he had a new baby stepsister, three-year-old Irene, who was young enough to be his own daughter. The atmosphere of the home, the tension and antagonism, must have been thick enough to choke on. On Sunday, September 17, 1911, Francis and Irene had spent the morning picking hickory nuts. Time got away from them, and Frances found herself rushing home to make lunch. Andrew and Philip were already at the house. Little Irene went outside to play while waiting for food. And the scene quickly transformed from an idyllic Sunday with the family to a horror movie. Something happened with the kitchen stove while Frances was making lunch, and flames engulfed her from head to foot. Also burning was the oil used to fuel the stove. The extreme heat from the flames caused the water inside Frances's body to boil and her skin to melt. Little Irene was the first to follow her mother's screams to find her burning to death. Next was Philip, who urged his arthritic body to move faster as his wife screamed louder. Last was Andrew, who, when he saw his stepmother, threw water on her to stop the fire. Water is the worst thing you want to throw on an oil fire. The water he threw actually caused the fire to spread further across Francis's body. 
Somehow, the fire on Francis was put out, but the horrific damage was done. Andrew and Irene took Francis's burnt, smoking body to the bedroom. Any small touch caused her to moan in pain. The Kehoes did not have a phone, so Andrew and Irene walked to their neighbor's house to call a doctor. Hetty Murphy, the Kehoe's neighbor, she recalled Andrew being calm as he asked her to phone for a doctor and a priest. She had no idea the situation was as dire as it was. The doctor and priest arrived at the farm to find Francis little more than a blackened lump on the bed, sobbing in agony. The doctor knew he could do nothing to save his patient, and he looked on as the priest administered last rites. Eventually, Francis succumbed to her injuries, and it wasn't until after the bombing of the Bath School that people started to wonder if Andrew had a hand in his stepmother's death. Andrew was a smart man. Surely he knew not to throw water on an oil fire. In the months after the death of his stepmother, Andrew rekindled an old relationship he had at college with a woman named Ellen Price. Ellen, who went by the nickname Nellie, was the niece of a successful businessman and politician from Lansing, Michigan. On May 14, 1912, just seven months after the gruesome death of his stepmother, Andrew married Nellie, and they began their marriage living on Philip's farm, where Andrew continued his work with keeping the farm going for his father. Philip Kehoe would die on January 8, 1915. There is no note of what became of little Irene after she lost both of her parents. Andrew and Nellie moved to Bath, and they lived on Nellie's uncle's farm. They'd worked out a deal with the family that the Kehoes would buy the farm from the family's estate. The total cost would be $12,000. They gave $6,000 as a down payment, with the rest to be paid, with interest, as a mortgage held by Nellie's family. To give you an idea of the cost, $6,000 in 1920 is worth about $77,000 in today's money. So the farm was worth about $150,000 and Andrew Kehoe put down a deposit of half when they made the purchase. His new neighbors in Bath thought that Andrew was a strange man who didn't wear overalls while he farmed, and noticed that he spent all of his money on fancy farm equipment. But he was a polite neighbor, willing to extend a hand of help when asked. Andrew was also considered the go-to man for dynamite, as he became an expert using the material for removing stumps from his property. It became commonplace for Andrew's neighbors to hear him setting off large detonations on his property, or to see him coming back from Lansing with several cases of dynamite and detonators. In 1921, the city of Bath passed a bill saying they were going to build a consolidated school for the children. Currently, there were several smaller schools that children went to that put all kids, regardless of age, in one room to learn. A consolidated school was a step in the direction toward modern education, as children would be grouped by age and taught material suitable for their age. The town would have to raise a considerable amount of money to pay for the school, so a new tax law was passed for the citizens of Bath. Andrew Kehoe, a man known for being frugal, did not care for the new bill, and he fought it from its inception to the day it passed. 
Once the bill became law, Andrew Kehoe wanted to be part of how the money set aside for the school was being spent. So he ran for school board treasurer under the coalition that the school board needed new leadership, and he won a three-year term. Andrew was a meticulous record keeper, and he would balance the books down to the penny. It was this reputation for his detailed records of meticulousness that led him to being appointed town clerk when the former town clerk unexpectedly passed away. Andrew was delighted by the appointment. He was finally in a position to make real change in the community. As much as Andrew's meticulousness was a blessing, so was it also a curse. He was constantly in fights with the school board and fighting with the school superintendent, Emery Hewick. I believe Hewick is the proper pronunciation of his last name, at least it's the one I've seen most popularly used. Hewick drew most of Andrew's ire, but he didn't do himself any favors by going toe-to-toe with the school board over transportation bids that he, Andrew, felt were driven by nepotism rather than making what was what he thought of as the best financial decision. Hewick was a wonderful superintendent, and he was constantly pushing for accreditation for the school, something that Andrew saw as Hewick just trying to spend more of the town's money. One year after being appointed town clerk, Andrew lost the position during the general election. He lost out to another member of the community. And part of the reason why Andrew lost was due, at least in part, to his arguing with the school board. However, despite his fury over losing the post, Andrew kept a calm facade in public and did not challenge the election. He attended every city council meeting where he would sit quietly in the audience with his wife, Nellie. What the council didn't know is that Andrew was angry and he was watching, waiting, and planning. In the summer of 1926, Andrew's wife, Nellie, became ill. She was a vibrant and active woman, but that summer the color drained from her face and she had difficulty breathing. Andrew spent a lot of time taking her back and forth to hospitals in Lansing. Doctors would diagnose her with tuberculosis, then change that diagnosis to asthma. Regardless, the once social Nellie left the house less and less. Her illness took a toll on Andrew, who by the fall of 1926 had stopped paying the mortgage on their farm. When confronted by a lawyer from his wife's estate about the lack of mortgage payments, Andrew laid blame on the school taxes, saying that's why he couldn't afford to make the payments. And it's likely that Andrew knew that he and his wife were in no danger of eviction, because Nellie's family, who held the mortgage, would not cast out the sick woman and her caretaker husband. Once considered a friendly neighbor, Andrew's relationship with the citizens of Bath began to crumble. The local school bus driver reported that Andrew would be outside of his house every morning with his watch to make sure the bus was running on time. Another neighbor relayed a strange story where Andrew tried to sell him an old horse for $125. The neighbor declined to buy the animal even after much pressure from Andrew. A few weeks later, Andrew came by the neighbor's farm with the horse and left the animal behind. The neighbor thought that this was a gift until Andrew showed up with a bill of sale and demanded $125 for the horse, far more than the animal was worth. 
and while his behavior was increasingly eccentric, Andrew's reputation as a man willing to adopt new technology, plus his education as an electrical engineer, gave him the opportunity to do jobs at the school building. Andrew enjoyed doing this work because it saved the town from having to pay top dollar to a professional. It also provided him with unfettered access to the school, particularly the basement where he'd begun bringing boxes on the days that he worked. If anyone asked about the boxes, he would say it was equipment for the task he was working on that day. And now, listeners, we have come full circle. We have returned to the events discussed at the top of the episode. The Kehoe farm is on fire, and now there's been an explosion at the local school. Everyone in town rushes toward the school. Some are worried about their children. Others want to help, and still more want to see the fire itself. First-hand accounts of the disaster are detailed in Arnie Bernstein's book, Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing. First-grade teacher Bernice Sterling recalls, quote, It seemed as though the floor went up several feet. After the first shock, I thought for a moment that I was blind. When it came, the air seemed to be full of children and flying desks and books. Children were tossed high in the air. Some were catapulted out of the building. The explosion caused the north wing of the school to collapse, leaving only the back wall standing. Descriptions of the destruction are absolutely horrifying. Monty Ellsworth, a neighbor of the Kehoe's, recounts, quote, There was a pile of children, about five or six, under the roof, and some of them had arms sticking out, some had legs, some just their heads sticking out. They were unrecognizable because they were covered with dust, plaster, and blood. The body of seven-year-old Doris Johns was suspended in the rubble by her feet in plain view until someone could get through the debris and dislodged her body. Sixth-grade teacher Eva Gubbins was trapped in the rubble, her legs pinned under a concrete beam. While waiting to be rescued, she came to a horrifying realization. The body of one of her students was crushed under that same beam just inches away from her. Perhaps the most heartbreaking story belongs to teacher Hazel Weatherby. Twenty-year-old Hazel, who taught third and fourth grade students, was found deep in the rubble with bricks burying her up to her waist. In her arms were two children, both dead. Rescuers gently lifted the bodies of the children from Hazel's protective hold. As soon as her arms were empty, Hazel Weatherby died. You can see a photo of Hazel at findagrave.com. Both her picture and a copy of her death certificate are available to view. School Superintendent Emery Hewick, a veteran of the First World War, he stood out as a hero of the day. He coordinated the rescue with others who responded to the scene. At one point, the bespectacled Hewick was begging children not to jump out of a second-story window instead asking them to wait for ladders. The children, they didn't want to wait, because the floor they were standing on was becoming increasingly unstable. Despite the children not heeding Hewick's warnings, serious injury was avoided. Hewick also took it upon himself to coordinate phone calls, even calling the state government and state police himself. He was a cool head during a frantic situation, and the amount of lives he saved that day is immeasurable. 
While Monty Ellsworth was driving to his farm to get ladders and rope to help with the rescue, he remembered seeing Andrew Kehoe driving in the opposite direction, toward the school. Quote, He grinned and waved his hand. When he grinned, I could see both rows of his teeth, said Ellsworth. Ellsworth was one of the lucky ones. His child survived the bombing, and Ellsworth would live to be almost 90, passing away at age 87 in 1974. When Andrew Kehoe arrived at the parking lot of the school, he must have been thrilled at the sight. Rows of dead and injured children were lined up near the building. Mothers were hysterically crying as they checked the bodies one by one. Fathers were frantically digging through the debris in hopes of finding their child. When Andrew arrived and saw school superintendent Emery Hewick, he waved him over. A witness claimed that once Hewick was near the car, Andrew pulled out a rifle and fired into the back seat of his truck. The back seat of Kehoe's truck was filled with dynamite as well as pounds and pounds of metallic debris. The shot ignited the dynamite and the debris, acting as shrapnel, tore through anyone unlucky enough to be standing nearby. Hewick and Andrew Kehoe were killed instantly, and Postmaster Glenn Smith, who marked his 33rd birthday that morning and had carried dozens of bodies out of the wreckage, Smith was mortally wounded. The explosion from the truck blew Smith's leg right off, and while he was attended to immediately and a tourniquet was applied to his leg, his injuries were not compatible with life and he died en route to the hospital. Also killed was Cleo Clayton, an eight-year-old boy who had managed to pull himself out of the school and collapse in the parking lot, only to be struck down by the blast from Andrew's truck. The force of the explosion was so strong that the fragmented bodies of Kehoe and Hewick landed 60 feet away from the truck. Andrew's remains were identified by his driver's license, Hewick's by the tattered remains of his jacket. Otherwise, they would have been completely unrecognizable. Vehicles parked near the truck caught fire. There was unbelievable carnage left in the wake of the explosion. Chunks of human flesh were hanging off telephone wires. There was hardly anything left of Keo's vehicle, but it was clear that a tangled mess of intestines were wrapped around the steering wheel. At 10.45 a.m., a difficult decision was made. Because of the discovery of unexploded dynamite throughout the school, the search for children had to be called off until the area was deemed safe. A state trooper and an engineer worked together to carefully disarm all of the dynamite. However, there were some places that were too small for the men to squeeze their bodies through. Enter Chester Sweet, a teenage boy whose younger brother and sister attended Bath Consolidated and who had been injured in the blast. Chester squeezed his body into tight spaces and carefully removed all of the dynamite he found. In all, 504 pounds of unexploded dynamite were removed from the school. It is estimated that 100 pounds did explode under the building. Had all of the dynamite gone off like it was supposed to, like Keo had hoped, it's reasonable to assume there would have been almost no survivors. Chester Sweet lived a long life. He passed away in his 80s, and he is buried at Pleasant Hill Cemetery in Bath. By the time rescuers were able to focus their attention on the Kehoe farm, 
it was completely burned down. The only thing left standing was the chicken coop where rescuers found an undetonated bomb. Nellie Kehoe is still missing. Police and firefighters combed through the wreckage but could not find her body. There was some small hope that maybe Nellie made it out or was out of town. And that hope was dashed the next day, May 19th. Rescuers realized Nellie had been there all along. She was right under their nose. The remains of 51-year-old Nellie Kehoe were so badly burned that countless people had walked by her and didn't realize it was a body. She was found with her arms tied to the axle of a makeshift wheelbarrow. Her left arm lay over the axle, completely loosened from the shoulder. Her right arm was bent backwards, the bones shattered. Investigators couldn't determine the cause of the damage to her arms. Was she brutalized before the fire? Or did the fire and explosion cause her injuries? There was also a crack in Nellie's forehead, and it's unclear if this injury was caused by blunt force trauma or if it was caused by her brain expanding and turning to gas under the intense heat of the fire. It is generally accepted that Andrew bludgeoned his wife Nellie to death and left her body to burn in the fire at the farm. At the edge of the farm, searchers found a message left by Andrew Kehoe. Angrily stenciled on a wooden sign was, Criminals are made, not born. And listeners, it's amazing what a tragedy can reveal in people. The citizens of Bath, as well as surrounding communities, they came together to help the dead and injured. People drove children in their personal vehicles to the hospital. Homes were open to act as triage centers. Food, shelter, and comfort was offered to those who were grieving. On August 22nd, a little over three months from the bombing, Beatrice Gibbs would go into surgery to remove a splinter from her hip. The fourth grader arrived at the hospital immediately after the bombing in awful shape, both legs broken in two places, with her right leg sustaining a large gash, a shattered elbow and another break above in her left arm, a laceration to the back of her head, and her small body covered in cuts and bruises. Doctors could not wrap her broken body because the wounds needed to be closely monitored. Beatrice spent those three months in a complicated bed frame with her body suspended from ropes and held in place with 35-pound weights. Gradually, the weights were reduced as her body tried to stitch itself back together. But no matter how much healing took place, Beatrice was in terrible pain. She succumbed to her injuries on the day after her surgery on August 23rd. She would be Andrew Kehoe's 44th and final victim. Andrew took with him 38 children and six adults, and an additional 58 people were injured. Nellie Kehoe was laid to rest in her family's plot in Lansing. Her headstone reads, quote, Ellen Price. Andrew Kehoe's remains were put into a coffin, lowered into the ground, and covered with dirt. There is no headstone, no marking of his grave. If you are interested in learning more about the Bath Massacre, I highly recommend the book Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing by Arnie Bernstein. Bernstein did amazing research on this book, and it is filled with eyewitness accounts from the day of the bombing, as well as photos of the school and the victims. 
If you are in Michigan, you can probably find the book at your local library. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind this week's episode of Already Gone. As we mark our fourth anniversary, I am filled with gratitude for you, the listener. In this time of uncertainty, I hope that you are well, and as always, please be safe. Thank you.